It's Wednesday, January 26th from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Stephen Breyer to retire. That is the most succinct headline. There is just no avoiding the rhyme. I guess you go more casual with subject and verb clause, but then you get Stephen's leaving. Does not steer you away from verse. Yeah, maybe I'll just do my whole analysis today in rhyme. Must this justice bust a move on a 6-3 court be it a crime or a tort? Even wise Stephen has not left to prove. That was a complicated little ditty. Limerick plus a couple of internal rhymes. I think I might have backed into a villanelle. Maybe all court decisions should be delivered via a poem or argued as rap. Oyez, oyez, the case of Lil Dicky v. Da Baby shall be heard. Let's dispense with that nonsense and get to this nonsense. Did you know Stephen Breyer has what was once known as the Jewish seat? No, it's not like Irish elbow. His seat was once held by Benjamin Cardozo, who gave way to Felix Frankfurter, who was replaced by Arthur Goldberg, who was succeeded by Abe Fortas, Jew, 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 Jew. And then Nixon, not interested in preserving this coincidence, or dare I say, tradition, Nixon appointed Harry Blackman, but when Blackman retired, enter the Jewish justice, Stephen Breyer. So now Elena Kagan will be the sole Jewish member of the court. But also, I say this to point out, do not think ethnic considerations are a new thing when it comes to appointing court justices. Here was Jen Psaki today. Well, I've commented on this previously. The president has uh, stated and reiterated his commitment to nominating a black woman to the Supreme Court and certainly uh, stands by that. Just who this black woman might be? We'll have some ideas and that'll be in the spiel. But first, I give you what I think is an excellent conversation about the possible Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I sought out a voice, a perspective that you may not have thought of before, but one worth listening to. The former Soviet states all have different relations with their former master. I use the term advisedly, you'll find out why. So I thought, let's ask an Estonian, and not just an Estonian, the former president of Estonia for insight and analysis. Estonia is trying to arm the Ukrainians, but Germany is blocking them. And as far as facing down Putin, well, George W. Bush once said, I looked the man in the eye. I found it to be very straightforward and trustworthy. Whereas Thomas Hendrik Ilves sees something else, an extended interview with Estonia's former president up next. The country of Estonia punches above its weight, as it were, scoring extremely high on the human development scale and returning to its citizens tangible fruits for being Estonian. That is the mark of a well-run country. Their elections and medical systems use the blockchain, which is something America would do well to copy. But for Estonia to stay Estonian, they have to worry about Russia, really worry. The massive country directly to their east isn't an irritant. It's certainly not a hypothetical. It's a threat. Among the 15 former Soviet states, Estonia is the most advanced, and Russia's so-called near-abroad policies represent a real threat. So the Estonians, along with Western countries, other Western countries like the UK, Poland, the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, have decided to send arms to the elected Ukrainian government to try to dissuade the Russians from invading. But Germany 
is refusing to issue permits for their German origin weapons that Estonia was hoping to ship to Ukraine, like a diplomatic kill switch. Thomas Hendrik Ilvis is teaching at Tartu University in Estonia and quite relevantly was the president of Estonia from 2006 to 2016. Welcome to The Gist. Well, it's great to be here. I've been a listener, but never a panelist. <laughs> well, you, you earned your spot thanks to Putin's designs on a country to yourself. So the first question is actually to you, not as a president, but just as an Estonian. Describe, if you can, the average Estonian's relationship and opinion of Russia. Well, I mean, the, given the experience under Soviet rule was so bad, I mean, uh, massive amounts of people were deported to Siberia, like on cattle cars for no reason, out of the clear blue sky. Um, and, um, and subsequently, yeah, basically the repressions continued. They got a little milder in the 1980s, but really there was no such thing as freedom of speech. And, you know, you do find yourself in jail if you said something they didn't like. So that's kind of the general attitude here. Yeah. And since then, Russia has not fully reformed. I mean, Russia, as I don't have to tell you, but I'll tell my listeners, has kidnapped Estonian citizens. And I'm right now looking at a picture of you sitting two seats away from Vladimir Putin. And the buffer between you is Viktor uh, Yushchenko, the former president of Ukraine, infamously poisoned by, I would say, credible reports would point back to Russia. So, you know, Putin, you've met with Putin. Do you think he can be deterred? Well, I, I'm I'm beginning to worry about his mental state at this point because uh, the whole the I mean clearly the Russian foreign ministry and the defense ministry are all acting on his orders, but what his orders are are quite weird. Uh, that's put it mildly. I mean, he first of all has this kind of obsession with restoring the Soviet Union. He's been claiming for years that Ukrainians are not a real people. Uh, even writing like long uh, ethnographic essays about how Ukrainians are not anything at all, uh, which uh, which is rather bizarre. You know, I mean, they're like when you know Gaddafi wrote kind of stuff like that. Mm. So that's the one side. But then uh, the the demands that the that the uh, Russians made right before Christmas uh, to NATO. Um, which is that basically they claim Eastern Europe was left, quote, without masters after the end of the Cold War, um, which is kind of indicative of an attitude and a demand for the restoration of spheres of influence. Yeah, and then they, you know, one of, one of it gets a lot into the press, they don't want Ukraine to join NATO. Well, that won't happen for years and years and years. Uh, however, there's no way that uh, NATO can say we we're gonna, okay. We're going to revise the North Atlantic Treaty to meet your demands, which will never happen because you have 30, 30 allies in in uh, in NATO, and you're going to have to ratify every country would have to ratify a treaty change like that. But the Russians know this full well, so basically the conclusion of everyone is that the Russians are spoiling for a fight. Yeah. So I understand that maybe the form of his mental state has uh, trended toward the megalomaniacal, but uh, couldn't you make an argument that just in terms of his rational self-interest, maybe not how he's expressing it, but every time he's engaged in incursions abroad, it's redounded to his increased popularity at home? 
It did in the past. I mean, certainly when he uh, invaded and occupied uh, Crimea eight years ago, that was an effect, sort of this jingoistic euphoria uh, started, uh, started up. It gave him a big boost because he was basically down, down in popularity insofar as you can trust, you know, sort of state-run popularity polls. But right. now uh, there doesn't seem to be much of uh, kind of this of this jingoistic spirit among the population, and the economy is in pretty dire straits. Um, which it's not really grown since 2014, and on top of that, uh, while Russia has lots of money in reserves, I mean, 650 billion dollars. It hasn't spent that on people's well-being, but they have really, really built up their military. So, uh, so I, most people don't foresee any kind of uh, hurrah moment if he does invade. And with the number of troops he has there, he's going to uh, suffer significant casualties among sort of normal troops. Because, okay, he's got his elite troops, you know, sort of, uh, little green men type troops that we saw in 2014. Right, the irregulars. Right. Well, you have, yeah, there are three groups. I mean, they're the mm -hmm. special forces. They're like SEALs and uh, Green Beret. Then you have this paramilitary group uh, called Wagner, which is a, uh, a mercenary group, basically, but completely, I mean, working for the Russian government. And then you have the uh, the average recruits. I mean, they have a draft. Uh, who are not very well trained, and those, uh, having massive casualties among those people will cause a huge problem domestically because that's just brings back memories of Afghanistan and so on, which you don't want to rekindle. Do you, so? What you are saying though is how much of a fight the Ukrainians will put up really could be a determinant of if Putin invades and, you know, if he withdraws, his appetite for this possible incursion. Well, from what I've seen from reading is that the esprit de corps is rather high among Ukrainians. First of all, their army has 145,000 troops, uh, as opposed to the 130,000 that the Russians have. Uh, and then they have 300 to 400,000 veterans with combat experience who have been fighting uh, in, the, in the Ukrainian army against uh, the, in the Donbass, that's the eastern part of Ukraine. Um, and then on top of that, amazing kind of uh, patriotism that never existed until 2014 among average, normal Ukrainians who, I mean, if you see some of these clips where you have these 50, 60-year-old women wearing uh, camouflage suits running around with guns, you know what I'm saying? Well, I'm a grandmother, but I'm going to defend my country. Yeah. And that is, that's, you know, I mean, they may not be that effective, but if you're going, I mean, it basically it leads to, uh, I mean, if they get, if the Russians get serious, you're going to have a, a major insurgency war. Now, Russians have actually put down insurgencies incredibly brutally, but that will not redound very well to Russia if when you start seeing videos of uh, the kind of the atrocities that the Russians have committed against other insurgencies, most notably in Chechnya in 1999, which was also done by Vladimir Putin, just so you know. 
I mean, basically, the Ukrainians have a lot of men, but they're, uh, you know, it's like the door song. They got the guns, but we got the numbers. Well, the problem is that the the amount of material that the uh, Russians have there is huge, and of course, complete air dominance. I mean, they have, you know, they have a very good air force. They have drones. They have missiles. They have, you know, uh, high tech artillery. So that is where Ukraine is not well off. And then to go back to your initial question, I mean, Germany mm -hmm. forbade us from sending them some 40-year-old howitzers. We also have given them, uh, I guess, 300, 400 Javelin anti-tank weapons, which we actually initially bought from the United States for real money. But we are just giving, the, to, them, to, the, giving them to the Ukrainians because they're far better anti-tank weapons than anything that is out has been out there before. And you have, you know, the UK sent their equivalent of javelins there. So it's, it's um, I mean, they're getting much better armed, but of course, when the, if the Russians have, uh, you know, that's 700, I don't know what the US is there, sent some too. But you're going to have to, I mean, the, the Ukrainians will be much better armed than they were just a few weeks ago. But we'll right. see what happens. Well, I do want to ask about this. The arms sale, the essential veto power Germany has over the use of its weapons, even the ones they sell to you. Was it a surprise or a shock that the Germans would do this? Um, well, it was not a complete surprise that uh, that they would do this because they've been like this. Um, I mean, I would say if there is one secondary uh, and major um, result of this, all of this that we've seen is that uh, there has been a, a huge uh, shift in attitudes towards Germany. Uh, first of all, Germany will not send uh, weapons or not allow weapons to be sent. Uh, they have they have said they would not impose the most crucial sanctions, one on Nord Stream, the gas pipeline, or Nord Stream 2, and also on SWIFT, which would be the other major tool of the West, which is the um, which is the clearing function for dollar transactions. Uh, but this caused a lot of distress, um, and it's not just, I mean, I mean, if you read the German press, it's all oh, the East Europeans are annoyed at us. Well, it's not only <laughs> the East Europeans, it's also, you know, the UK, which had to fly around Germany because the Germans had so much paperwork that it would take two months, two weeks to get approval to fly over Germany. And the Netherlands is, is assisting and the Spa Spain is sending ships into the Black Sea. I mean, there's, you know, not to mention the United States sending lots and lots of stuff and the Canadians are all also on board. So there's this thing like Germany is this one NATO country that is not pulling its weight. And on top of that, they have had, at least at the highest levels, a very strange attitude towards Russia. Uh, based on history. I mean, even the German president, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, said last year, he goes, well, we have to do this Nord Stream 2 um, pipeline, which is highly controversial, because we owe it to the Russians because of all the bad things that Germany did in World War II. Uh -huh. Ignoring, however, that, you know, the Nazis, Germans, killed more Poles more Belarusians and more Ukrainians to be, you know, at this moment, most important 
than they ever killed Russians because, well, who's in between Russia proper and, uh, and Germany? Well, Poland, and then you got Belarus, and then you got Ukraine. So anyway, the net result is that um, this waffling and, um, and fairly um, you know, intellectually untenable and morally dubious position on the part of the German government, the new German government, I should say, because the old one was the same, um, is not really reflecting well. And you can add all these other things, such as the German government lobbying heavily uh, the U.S. Senate not to put sanctions on Nord Stream 2, which then, of course, the, the Biden administration went along with. But anyway, the whole thing means that there is a huge amount of distrust toward Germany, which, on top of everything else, is a country that, unlike us and lots of other countries, does not pull its weight when it comes to defense expenditures. I mean, so there, I mean, this is kind of a reckoning for Germany because previously these policies did not really, well, they, they we all knew what they were thinking, but we, it never really had a big effect because, well, you don't have to send weapons if there's no, if no one's attacking anyone and so forth. And now it's become a serious issue among other allies. Wow. So I want to go back for a second to uh, the weapon sales and just ask you in the abstract, the policy of the originator of the weapons being able to essentially veto, you know, not sign off on their usage. Is this uh, a good thing in general? It's just being misapplied here? Oh, yeah, well, I mean, say Estonia said, oh, I think we'll send 300 javelins to... Uh, Iran. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I get that, but it seems to me that the signatories of such a uh, such an agreement would be the exact countries you don't have to worry about. So the United States does not have that agreement explicitly with the Saudis, and guess what? The Saudis use American-sold weaponry in Yemen, and America, of course, can't have that agreement with Afghan forces after uh, the Taliban takes over. So it seems to be the kind of provision that only works with people that you don't have to really worry about that much, or not people, countries. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the general problem, is that you have international conventions, and then some people follow them and others don't. Technically, the Saudis are not selling the weapons further. They're simply using them, right? Right, right. So we have the treaty to prevent the much less worse action. And also, of course, this is in the weeds, but the, Saudi, the Saudis are hiring people from the poorest countries of, of, of Africa, you know, Chad and places to come in and use those weapons. So maybe it's akin to that. But what I really was thinking is when you say, you know, this is the problem with uh, international diplomacy, that there are bad actors. It seems to me that you could look at this moment, the Germans approving the weapon sale, as a question of diplomacy versus is brute politics. I mean, if the Germans stick uh, hard, I would say not stick to their guns, but stick to refusing to let you use your guns. And the only recourse you have is to try to convince them and it doesn't work. Maybe it's a poor statement on the power of diplomacy to do the right thing, even militarily. Or maybe I'm looking too much into it. Well, I am sure that uh, there have been a lot of there's been a, a fair bit of remonstrating on uh, revising this decision. I mean, well, today they decide they I guess out of something uh, they decided uh, they decided that they would donate five thousand helmets to Ukraine. 
Right. Blankets and helmets. Apparently, this is what the Ukrainians need to repel the Russians. Right. Well, I mean, the thing is, blankets and helmets are the kind of things that you gave to countries 30 years ago. You know, we're not going to give you weapons, but we'll give you helmets. Right. I mean, but that's not where Ukraine is today. I mean, Ukraine is a totally different country. And, no. and yeah. what has not been sort of understood enough, though I refer to it, but basically, you know, this is, you know, this goes back to Hobbes, but basically, you know, states are created by war in that they consolidate. And Ukraine was kind of your typical post-Soviet kind of overly corrupt and kind of sleazy and not very good um, for first 10 years and then they had a little revolution but that fizzled out with a lot of and there's a lot of interference from russia and it kept being highly corrupt until 2014 putin overplayed his hand and he because before he said no nato no nato but ukraine was like wanted to get into something as uh, simplistic and kind of primitive as an association agreement with the european union which would have given it Basically, a free trade agreement plus student and teacher exchange. That's an association agreement. Mm -hmm. But even that was too much for Putin. So, so uh, his little local satrapy there, or satrap, um, Yanukovych, who ended up fleeing, said, no, we're not going to do that. And that caused the whole kind of massive protest that why we can't even we can't even have a piddly little agreement with the eu because you know putin says no since that led to putin attacking well in i mean invading and occupying uh crimea and then on top of that uh creating these fake little satrapies uh the luhansk and uh, donetsk people's republic I mean, unrecognized by anyone except other unrecognized satrapies. And uh, I mean, this as this you know that part of the war has led to fourteen thousand deaths on the side of Ukraine. And when you have a war, and your I mean your people are being killed by Russians in your territory. It leads, it changes, it sort of focuses you. And so there is this, I mean, there, that's why the esprit de corps that I mentioned before, I mean, people have really, you know, sort of are out there, I'm going to defend my country. Right. You could argue that maybe having some vestiges of uh, functioning state uh, and plus this imminent threat has created uh, the nascent signs of nationalism and not just uh, the ethnic pride that categorized the Ukrainians' experience for you know most of their lives. Well, one of the really interesting thing is that Ukrainian Ukraine is divided among, say, native Ukrainian speakers and native Russian speakers, but there's no difference. I mean, you know, it's kind of like. Uh, I mean, Putin has been pushing this and some kind of leftists, I don't know, well, sort of weird people in the West say, well, they're Ukrainian speakers. Well, that's kind of thing, saying like, you know, the, the British are going to defend English speakers in Ireland. <laughs> right. I mean, we're Southern speakers down here in Texas. Yeah. It's the uh, hostility of small differences. <laughs> right. Um, so here is my here is my last question. 
Um, obviously, the, there's a humanitarian and impending military crisis in Ukraine, and that focuses the mind or is a literal call to arms, a call that's being denied by outside forces like Germany. But I just want to zoom out. Is there a chance for Ukraine? Do you look at Ukraine maybe akin to Estonia in the early 1990s? Or was Estonia, in terms of its future development, or was Estonia, or take another country, so much more advanced um, uh, related to Russia that it, it's, do you worry that it's actually possible for Ukraine to achieve the exit velocity to escape the Russians' gravitational pull? Absolutely, but it requires effort. My, my, my optimism comes out of the same sort of look at the change in mentality. I mean, look, all of the countries that came out of the Soviet Union were like backward, poor, corrupt. Uh, Russia still is. It's like 147 in the world on cor in corruption. Estonia in the is like sixth in the world. I mean, ahead of us, we only have Finland, New Zealand, Norway, Denmark, and Sweden. And so we're sixth. The U.S. is 35th, yeah. right? I mean, it's. Um, I mean, so if we can make in 30 years this kind of transition. Uh, you know, to a country that is like number one on the one hand uh, in digitization, but also number one and number two in internet freedom in the world. I mean, you can turn into a liberal democratic society uh, that also happens to be these days already on a per capita basis richer than Spain and Portugal, which is not poor anymore. You can do it. Thomas Hendrik Ilves was president of the Republic of Estonia from 2006 to 2016. Follow him on Twitter for international analysis and blockchain insight. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's great to be on. And now the spiel. President Biden promised James Clyburn, the South Carolina congressman and power broker, that if elected, he would appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. He needed to make this promise because he needed South Carolina. Biden got it. And now he gets to keep his vow. You are probably going to hear a lot of conservatives who would never, ever back Biden's nominee under any circumstances bemoan this pledge as something like anti-meritocratic. I'm Pretty much sure Tucker or some Tucker-like entity will even call this racist against whites. But Biden actually, I would say, has to do it. It's good politics. It's efficient promise-keeping. It's constituency-satisfying. Now, it's not cost-free politics. I bet some white Biden voters who are key to his victory won't love the fact that the president, before even reviewing the candidates, ruled out 93% of the American public. But that doesn't matter. Biden's gonna do it, gotta do it, should do it. If Biden navigated every political trade-off as assuredly as he will be upholding this promise, I'd say his presidency would be a lot better off. And here's the thing. It seems like there are good candidates to choose from, or at least one very strong candidate who everyone's talking about. Let's get an introduction to her. Judge Katanji Jackson, who is a wonderful newer member of the federal district court bench uh, here in the District of Columbia has already made her mark as a superb judge, uh, someone with a wonderful disposition on the bench who is always well prepared and thorough. Wait, that voice sounds familiar. Who is that praising Judge Jackson? Uh, I am Brett Kavanaugh of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. 
Okay, that was from a 2019 conversation on judging sponsored by the Historical Society of the District of Columbia Circuit. That's why Kavanaugh identified himself as he did. I watched that video and Judge Jackson aptly fits the descriptive language Justice Kavanaugh, now Justice Kavanaugh, laid out. She was asked what she wanted her legacy to be. Um, So I think if I could have a legacy, it would be um, sort of careful and thoughtful and thorough, uh, in my opinion. And Judge Friedman, what did you learn the hard way that you wish somebody had told you? Um, Wow. I think that I would like to be remembered as a judge who was both careful and thorough, in my opinions. Um, I think, as I said, the writing is very important to me. Um, I feel, especially in the age of Westlaw, where people can get on the computer and pull up your opinions, that they represent me in a way. Um, and so I'm a, you know, a, a person who is sort of very organized and thorough in my thought processes. And so I like for my opinions to reflect that. Um, so I think if I could have a legacy, it would be um, sort of careful and thoughtful and thorough, uh, in my opinions. Not the most scintillating answer, but it was thoughtful and it was careful, judicious even. So I'll tell you what I think is going to happen. Strap in. She'll be nominated. They'll find some writings from her past with infelicitous phrases. The Judiciary Committee will grill. The Judiciary Committee will grill her. Lindsey Graham will express grave doubts. Senator Kennedy will pepper her with legal quiz type questions. That's his thing. She'll get out of committee, emphasizing whatever I wrote then won't affect my judgments now. Also, I can't tell you, Senator, how I would rule in the future. I just can't do that. So depending on how badly she was damaging committee and how much Republican senators are worried about a challenge from their right, she'll get either 50 Dems plus the VP and no Republicans, or maybe a few Republicans, or even a decent number of Republicans, because so what? There's still six of us and three of them, and we can't really block a nomination for more than two years. Wait, hold on. Did someone ask Mitch that? Mitch, can we block? No, we really can't block a nomination for more than two years. She'll be seated. Articles rightly mentioning history will be written, and the steady march of conservative And the steady march of a conservative definition of justice will play out unless every so often Neil Gorsuch or Kavanaugh or John Roberts decide to defect from the majority. Or I could be totally wrong or partially wrong. I'm not going to be totally wrong. Could be a little wrong because these judicial nominations seem to play out by rote, but there are always the cases when expectations are upended. A justice could die on a hunting trip or try to convince us that boofing is puking or totally misstate COVID hospitalizations or offer adoption as an alternative for what was a constitutional right. Justice, being blind, has a way of wandering off into places we never expected. And that's it for today's show. Joel Patterson is the producer of The Gist. I wanted to work with him and he wanted to work with me because he says I passed his rigorous vetting process. I was able to um, get a sense of his soul. Michelle Pesca is the CFO of Peachfish Productions. The show is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Deperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening.